Being disabled or having a chronic illness can feel like you're moving forward in reverse. I'm your host, Scott Martin. Join me and my new friends from this underrepresented community as we talk about disrupting the status quo and creating change within the world and within ourselves. Hey, life's a road trip. Hop in. Let's turn on some tunes and go. With me in the passenger seat and managing the radio for this road trip is Carrie Davis. Carrie is the Vice President of Patient and Employee Experience at Hanger Clinic. She has been a featured speaker at numerous conferences, including the Cleveland Clinic Empathy and Innovation Conference and the Next Generation of Patient Experience Conference. Born with a below elbow congenital limb deficiency, Carrie has worn a prosthesis since she was nine months old. She credits her life's journey in and around the prosthetic industry for inspiring her to become the person she is today. And we're going to get in talking about that stuff. Uh, as a lifelong prosthetic patient, Carrie has drawn on her experience as well as partnering with patients, caregivers, and colleagues to in- intentionally design transformative patient experience at Hanger Clinic. Hi, Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm excellent. Thank you, Scott. Are you, You're in California, correct? No, I'm in Washington State. Washington. Oh, you're still in Washington. I found oh, yeah. you. So you went to uh, Wazoo. I did. Go Cougs. And, and then you uh, then you uh, ventured over to Gonzaga. Indeed. You, you stayed on the east side of the Palouse. Did you grow up there? I grew up in Spokane. Yeah. And then okay. I moved around. I lived in California and Texas and back to California. And then I came back to Spokane okay. and I've been here ever since. Okay. I actually uh, coached a year uh, at Gonzaga for uh, soccer. So I what? do know that area, and the winter is just gorgeous. Oh, um, yeah, you think it, so? It snowed yesterday. I, did you really? All right. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Well, we had about three inches worth of rain in central Wisconsin, and my wife and I were talking last night. Can you imagine if that was snow? Yeah, oh, wow. Whoa. Well, we'd, be, <laughs> we'd be firing up the uh, fireplace that night. So um, since doing the show, I've been noticing some things about – finding a thread in someone's life that starts out typically and early on and yours is so simple it carries them into what they end up doing in their profession and i don't know i i guess i'll just skip that because it's so simple because you were born uh missing part of your was it left arm yes right below yeah. my elbow uh-huh i guess i shouldn't say missing it's just what it was yeah and i was just here, born just born. Well, yeah. that carries right on. Here's a great uh, segue into this. Uh, someone said this. You tell me who this was. Is this it? She's just missing her hand. Oh, we got this. Who said that? Yeah, that would be my mom. Uh-huh. You know, when I was born in 1971, they weren't using ultrasound technology to, you know, determine gender in utero or count 10 fingers, 10 toes, all of those things. Right. And yeah. so when I was born and this is back in the day when dads were sitting out in hospital lobbies while Got moms were by themselves. Right. Yeah. Smoking. And so uh, my dad, when they told him, well, you have a daughter, but she was born with a pretty severe handicap. He kind of freaked out, you know, he was upset and just like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And then when they presented me to my mom, she's like, this is it. She's just missing her hand. We got this. So <laughs> yeah, moms, they're wonderful, right? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. So let's get down to the n- little bit of nitty gritty. And I'm, I'm going to quote you on something specifically, something you, you did and said when you were a kid. Uh, how was it growing up 
in, you know, with a disability. Yeah, you know, it was... We're talking about relationships, you know, with the other kids. Sure, sure. I really wasn't even aware of my disability until I got around the other kids, That's right? Cool. I was just yeah, yeah. in life. And uh, the minute I hit kindergarten is when I realized, oh, whoa, this is way different and people aren't comfortable with this. You know, I wore a, a cable operated hook. Um, and so there's all those like Captain Hook references and yeah. scary stuff and hook hanging out of the end of my shirt sleeve. So I got, you know, I got teased a lot. I got left out of games and, you know, people didn't want me on their teams and things like that. But it wasn't always like that too. I had a really good core group of friends that kind of stuck up for me. And, um, but for most of the part, you know, I felt like it was something I had to hide to make people feel better around me, feel more comfortable. Yeah. It's funny how we, we tend to do that. I I'm bilateral. Um, so yeah, I, I brought that on myself. I mean, you grew up with it, so I, there's a difference between us. But here's something I, I have thought about saying this uh, after I uh, lost both of my hands. And, and I'll, I think I'm quoting you. What's wrong? Someone once said to you when you were a child, what's wrong with your arm? And you responded, nothing. What's wrong with your face? Well, you- <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked to have responded that way, okay. Scott, but I didn't we have... Don't. You know, I didn't have the gumption to say it then, but yeah, people would be like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, oh God, I don't know. What is wrong with me? You know, it's nothing I could change or do anything about. Um, That's why I I worked so hard to hide it. Yeah. I I think uh, telltale sign of you probably going home at times, maybe crying because I'm picking it. I mean, totally understandable. Your mom probably built in such a, a strong base for you that you could handle it most any shit that came your way. Well, yeah, you know, I'll tell you though, it seemed I wanted to keep that part of my life separate from what was at home. I didn't want my parents to know that I was being teased because, oh my gosh, what if they had found out that I wasn't deserving of love and kindness like my peers knew? So I never would tell my family. I keep it really hidden. Like, you know, I, I'm doing fine. Everything's fine. You know, I became a very tough exterior, very fragile inside, but I could play any role. I could be the tough you know, your names and words and meanness. It doesn't hurt me. I'm strong um, because I didn't want my parents to see that. Well, watching your TEDx talk, and I found you on something else too, you come across, there is a bit of an edge to you and that uh, that's totally understandable, but you're, you're open about it. And it seems that, I don't know, I guess I'll ask you this, Carrie, where was it in your life? If you could pinpoint when you took on a screw this, you know, I'm just going to be who I am. The hell with everybody else. Gosh, do we ever get to that point where we just say to hell with everybody else? I mean, there, to some degree, I, I mean, I want, I want everyone to see who I am and, and what I'm about. And my disability is certainly part of it, but it's not all of it. And so I think maybe it was in my late teens when I was just like, look, I got to do something. I can't wear long sleeve shirts. It's hot in the summer yeah, and yeah. I can't cover up. And um, so I would just test myself a little bit and try and pretend like I was more confident. And through okay. the pretending, you know, through the acting like it doesn't matter that you're you're pointing and staring and whispering and all of that, or looking away, like I said, it's like, that hurt more than anything if you wouldn't even look at me. Um, But if I pretended that it didn't hurt, then it didn't. And so I just like, I don't know, I just adopted these different personas of I'm going to be courageous, I'm going to be strong, I'm going to be powerful. And then one day after you practice, and I would say I carried this, you know, well into my 30s of this like practicing um, Mm. 
of who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a confident girl. I wanted to be poised. I wanted to not care what people thought. Um, but I mean, gosh, to this day, I still kind of, I do kind of care what people think, but I still, I'm wildly just myself. Right. So, and my hook today, you know, my prosthesis for a while, I wore a prosthesis that had a hand and I could blend in and, and that in for a certain part of my life was important. But now, you know, I have a black carbon fiber forearm that's covered in Swarovski crystals. So, um, you know, I, I, I let it shine in other words. I I, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you have I mean, working with hanger, do you have more than one and, and you could swap them out or, or the, uh, the covering based on what sort of occasion or whatever you want to do? Well, so my everyday prosthesis has become this one that I wear every day, which is the black carbon fiber black, and a hook. Okay. Um, and yes, working for hanger, it has allowed me to try different kinds of arms and hands and terminal devices, um, some different like activity specific devices. So I have had one that was custom built for my bike. Uh, I was able to do a triathlon wearing that a couple of triathlons. We'll we'll get into that one. I want to really hear about what things you had to overcome. Uh, you're, you're bringing up the mechanical side of it. You had, you had uh, some problem solving to do there. So, okay. Yeah, Yeah. All right. So you are, you're kind of a bizarre person and I really like this. That's why you're on the freaking show. What instrument at 10 years old did you say you wanted to play? Well, I wanted to play the guitar, but I didn't, I didn't dare bring that up because I didn't have enough fingers. I didn't have two hands. Right. So I wasn't, I just kind of figured, well, people with one hand and one partial arm can't play guitar. So uh, when they forced us to pick an instrument, I picked the trumpet. And it's not because I love the trumpet. I mean, who does at 10? I don't know. Well, Louis Armstrong. Maybe. Yeah, sure. But I mean, I didn't. I just picked it because it required three fingers and I had them and I was able to to do it. So you're missing your your left hand and you use a prosthesis on the left. So I take it then that you held the trumpet with your left. No, I held, well, I kind of balanced it like up on okay. top of my prosthesis and then I held it mostly with my right. Okay. Because there's wow. little places to put your thumb and your little pinky and then you just push the three. Isn't it amazing about the human psyche when there's something we damn just want to do, we figure it out. And a lot of times it's through trial and error. Yeah. To try to get to that. That's just because I'm trying to imagine you doing that. I mean, I blow away people at times when I just do stuff because it's just trial and error and figure it out. But that's just wild. All right. And then you turn to basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one hand, they can defend you pretty easily. Well, the thing about it is, too, like I I was a good basketball player. I can catch, throw, dribble, all the things, shoot, make baskets. Um, But wearing a hook at the end of my arm, you know, they were like, ooh, you you seem to be a danger to the other players. You know, you can play with us, but you either have to take your prosthesis off or you have to wrap it all up in, in soft foam. And I just it was too embarrassing to, you know. Um, be told that I was a danger to other people. So I just, I just. Quit. Oh, okay. Okay. It sounded like you would become so comfortable with yourself with the hook that my God, now you, you thought that you were going to draw attention to yourself because you were putting a pad on it. Well, that, that wasn't, wasn't 
I was 10 when I was, I was yeah, on the true. elementary school. I mean, I didn't have, I, I was still covering up at that point, you know, okay. at 17, but you know what I did at 17 too? Cause I didn't want to have that other experience of being told at 17, you, you shouldn't be on the basketball team cause you could hurt people. So I went yeah. out for the track and, um, I did the high jump. I couldn't hurt anybody except myself. I often would, you know, fall on okay. the bar or roll on top of my hook and, you know, okay. but I wasn't a danger to anyone. So that's what I picked. Um, track, but it wasn't because I, I love track. Why didn't you just take the hook out, take the hook off if, while you were doing these athletic events? No, it's really, really vulnerable. Even to this day, I'm 52 years old, Scott, and to to take off my prosthesis, I feel naked almost. I feel really exposed. That's what I was wondering. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you ever go out without your prosthesis? Do you go to the grocery well, store without? No. Yeah. No. See, no. I mean, I, I I see. I it's I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do not go with short sleeves. Part of that is my psyche because I don't want to be reminded because this I, I see myself as this. Part of it is, too, I, I have batteries in my myoelectrics. Uh-huh. And once something clicked and a battery fell out and I almost lost it. So I wear you know uh, long sleeve shirts, just basic long sleeve shirts with the two buttons. So uh-huh. if, it, if it does happen to come out, it's just not going to fall out. Right. So I, I'm paranoid about that aspect. Um, I came across a video of you just this afternoon when I was reviewing everything. And here's you getting into a red convertible Mustang. Nice yeah. car. Is that, by the first of all, is that yours? Or that, you're was staging? that was a rental. It was staged. Okay. Staged. Okay. Because this, it looked like Hangar produced this. Yes. But what type of hand were you using on the left? Is was, it Mike yeah, like mine, a Mayo? Exactly. It was a myoelectric forearm. You know, we can take these off. I can just twist yeah. this off and okay. I can put a hand on like yours, right? So right. that's what I had. I was wearing a, a three-quarter uh, Autobach speed okay. sensor. Hand. And I, I saw that you were, I'm, I'm sure, again, it was staged to, hey, try to, you know, use just your... You're left while you're driving and you must have come out of a corner Yeah, and it looked like you had your hand locked or you're that good that it's going to definitely stay there. You weren't going to accidentally grab it while it's spinning back. Yeah. No. Damn, you were smooth. I, well, you know, I grew up wearing a prosthesis, right? And so, um, I, I got used to driving just that way. So yeah, I, that wasn't stage. I was, I'm a smooth driver for sure. Yeah, I I ended up solving a problem. I ended up putting on a, a spinner wheel. Um, oh, you did. Yeah, because you probably would have seen this. Yeah, there we go with the dogs. They quiet again. Dogs are barking. Yeah, that's okay. Um, but a spinner wheel from a ski boat, and then ended up having my prosthetist design uh, a U shape, so then I could just grab it. I mean, hey, I'm totally, totally safe. Mm-hmm. No problem. Hey, yeah. did you did you ever? consider becoming a prosthetist? No, never. I never even thought I'd be working in the prosthetics industry. This was not on my radar, but I've been doing it for the last 23 years. How did you get into this? (laughs) Doing what you're doing? Yeah. So I went to college. I went to WSU to become um, uh, an English teacher. And that's what I did for seven years. I taught high school English 
and speech and debate. I was a coach. And then um, when my kids came along, I had two babies back to back. Um, I quit working to stay with them. And I was married at the time. And I was following my husband's career. And we had moved to Dallas. And I needed some repairs on my prosthesis. So I didn't have my normal prosthetist. I had got out the yellow pages. I found hanger. Um, And that that kicked off um, a 23-year career so far. I intend to um, retire with them, knock on wood. Hang on. So this is in Dallas, and they have satellite pros- uh, They have satellite, not stores, but I don't know, offices. Offices, yeah. Yeah. So you're you're in. You went to a satellite place in in Dallas, and aren't they based out of? Is it Minneapolis? No. Um. Or are they are now in Arizona? Hangar, yeah, nine hundred hangar locations all across the United States. Yeah, but States. they're but they're home. They're home base. Somebody from the home base must have reached out to you and said, "Hey, we have a job you might want to do." No, not at happen? all. No. Okay, how so how it happened? Where you are? Yeah, I know. Isn't it crazy? It's bananas. It is. Uh, <laughs> so what happened was, um, they I needed some repairs done to my prosthesis, and they were like, "Hey, we're having this free clinic. Why don't you come in? It's a free education clinic." I was like, "This is the best company ever. They're doing free repairs." Cool. Well, it wasn't free repairs, right? It was a just evaluation. Right. But the the um, upper limb specialist that I met with, who is still at Hangar today, his name's Pat. Um, he's like, "Hey, I'll, I'll these are." little repairs. I'll do those for you if you will be a model patient at an event that we're having for occupational and physical therapists. I w- I'd love if you would just come and stand there. You don't even have to talk. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. I was a former teacher. I'm not going to not talk. And I ended <laughs> up um, I ended up kind of giving a one hour off the cuff, you know, uh, presentation really with these folks. And there was about a hundred people in the room. And he was like, Hey, would you do this for us again? And, and that's really what kicked off the career. I did. I started working with patient education and educating, um, our referral partners on upper limb options and features and benefits and limitations to some of the devices and, uh, started working with patients. And then, uh, they asked me to run a mentoring program. So I launched that nationwide and trained, uh, well, under my watch, about 1,200 people nationwide who had successfully recovered and rehabilitated post-amputation to um, mm-hmm. meet with new patients going through the process. So that's um, – and then in, in that process, too, I went and got back uh, – got my master's degree at Gonzaga in organizational leadership with a concentration okay. in servant leadership. Um, and I just started raising my hand in the organization saying, hey, is anybody looking at this? Hey, could I look at patient experience? And I'm, here I am today. That's just wild because what's running through my mind is, and as I, more I do the show, I always, so many things come down to one thing, it's money. So somebody at Hangar working their way up the ladder, somebody ended up writing off on, yeah, let's, let's have her do this. And, you know, yeah, okay, we'll pay her more because we're actually going to invest in patient care, which sounds really strange. Well, no, not, I mean, uh, coming from me, a, a patient in the industry, I'm like, this is where yeah. we are. This is where we invest. This is where we set out to make intentional, you know, experiences for patients because you're going to have an experience no matter what, right? You you will. But when you are thoughtful and intentional about the kind of experience you want to create for people who are generally in their most vulnerable state, no one ever thinks about, Mm -hmm. you know, no one ever thinks about becoming a person with limb loss or, you know, or they're projecting their stroke or having a baby that, you know. (laughs) A cranial remolding orthosis. Nobody thinks about this. And so no one wants to be a customer in our business. And uh, so that's when, a point. 
yeah, when we think about, okay, knowing that ours is a business where no one wants to be a customer, what can we do to ease that burden? What can we do to make this journey a little bit easier? Um, and so that's, that's my job is to make sure that we are intentionally focused on creating experience. Wow. So that brings up uh, a couple of examples I want to bring up to you that just to throw out. One was back in, I think, 2015. I was living in Las Vegas and newspaper, I was on NPR or something, that uh, a doctor in the prosthetics department or limb loss department with the Veterans Administration Hospital, the regional clinic down in Las Vegas, asked me to come and just sit down and talk with him. Mm-hmm. And we spoke. And he said, I have an idea. Can you come to one of our meetings next week Next week with the various departments? I said, heck yeah, for sure. And then met, he introduced me and he started going off into, this is what I want to do with Scott. I want to have him come in and work with the uh, disabled, not disabled, but the newly uh, new limb loss soldiers mm-hmm. that are coming back. And maybe we could advance this. And, and everybody said, yeah, that sounds great. No one was doing this. I said, of course, I'll, I'll help out. He said, mm-hmm. I want to make it a paid position so you could you know, do these things. He went up the ladder and he got pushed right away. Nope, you don't have this certification. So he was so ticked at the VA. I think he ended up leaving because the VA doesn't, didn't want to do what Hanger did by using you. Mm. To try to help, it's like he said. It's so traumatic, yeah, to go through limb loss. That speaking with someone and someone saying it's okay, it sucks, it's gonna suck, uh, but just being honest about it is so important. And I think that's gathering what part of what your job is and why people probably really uh maybe cry if they're talking to you about how much you help them. I don't do you realize, Carrie, how much you must help these people? I get a very good sense that um maybe like for example, parents that I meet with who are expecting a child without a limb, you know, that um, I, I get a very good sense that I ease their fears and that okay. they feel more confident, you know, or um you know, I don't do a lot of peer visits with folks who lose a limb because I didn't have that experience. Um, I can do, I, I want to make sure that we connect them with someone who has experienced limb loss. Okay. And then when they do that and they want to talk about, you know, well, let, what about prosthetic choices? How do I even choose? I, I can pull out my bag of arms, right. And I can show them, this is what this one does, <laughs> what this one does. These are the limitations of this one. Um, so that they can make an informed decision, you know, at, at hangar, our mantra is empowering human potential and you have to have the education and, you know, you can't just look at a brochure and go, yeah, that looks good. When it, you're, when you're picking an arm or a hand or a foot, you know, you really need yeah. to talk to somebody who's using it. And, and I have that a feeling we're going to, we're going to talk about a couple of programs that I, I, I found that you are uh, associated with, and I, I want to definitely want to get into them. Sure. Another one is, um, uh, I know you guys by now, of course, you do you produce prosthesis, for example, uh, myoelectrics, or do you just sell them? Yeah. So what happens in patient care in the prosthetics and orthotic space is that we, our clinicians work individually with patients to understand their needs, their uh, vocational mm-hmm. goals, avocations, that sort of thing. And then they 
build the componentry, the, the, choose the right componentry um, to put together for the patient. And it is custom fabrication and, and um, then delivered to the patient. But we don't like we don't build the components. We utilize okay. components that are already on the market. Yeah. Like my, my okay. battery system and my my terminal device and my forearm, they're all from different you know, places. And then they just manage. So here's another story for you that uh, ticks me off because I, I knew already knew this. It was a softball question for you, but you guys didn't build this stuff. But back in 2013, Congress was getting a lot of flack from people about all the amputees that were coming back from Afghanistan. And uh, a guy from Johns Hopkins University uh, Research Department contacted me and asked me to come out because they were designing, Congress is throwing a bunch of money, millions of dollars at who can come up with individually moving fingers, hands, because it looks better. It's going to soften the blow of, uh, in the media for how things look. And they brought me up because I'm bilateral and they hooked me up just the same way that, uh, I use. So they know that they would have me have success doing this. But there are different muscles in the uh, forums, and I, I worked my way through it. But I, I noticed that they have so many moving parts and individually moving fingers. I said to them, dudes, my hands break down every six months, and they're gone for two, two and a half months. And I'm lucky because they have backups. What the heck are you going to do when one of these veterans, when these things break, the cost, the insurance, how long it's going to take because they're not going to have a backup because these things probably cost twice as much as what I wear. What are you going to do about this? I never heard from them again. <laughs> yeah, I'm you not know, surprised. Scott, this is why I wear two titanium hooks for a hand, right? Because mm. it they're they're reliable, they're strong. I can't break them if I try. They respond immediately to my muscle signals. I can visually see around everything that I go to reach for. There's no you know, there's no question that I've got my glass in my hand. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, yeah, I mean, sure, that's cool technology with all those moving parts. But I'm with you. For me, the simpler, the better. You know, yeah. I I did when I was in the hospital. Uh, in rehab, I did have someone come in and fit me for the hooks. Uh -huh. No way. I just, yeah. no way. Because it was the, the captain hook thing. I'm like, mm -mm, sure. not doing this. Because I was also in education and coaching at college level and working with youth and, and things too. I just, no, didn't want to do it. So I became comfortable with the myoelectrics. I'm fine with mm -hmm. it. Totally fine. I didn't, I didn't go in that direction. Even though I did wear one that uh, prosthetists let me try. And within a week, it fried. Oh. The circuitry went, and they blamed me. What the hell are you talking about? You went swimming what with What am I going to do to it? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about Ampower. It's, okay. They're all caps, A-M-P-O-W-E-R. And, and folks, there's yeah. going to be a link to this on the Life's a Road Trip website. So Ampower, where did, where did that start from? Where were you in the process of the design of Ampower? Maybe start with what is Ampower, and then tell your story, part of Ampower. Yeah, absolutely. So Ampower is a nationwide peer mentoring program for people who are starting out on the journey of limb loss or limb difference, or they could be well into their journey and just need somebody else to talk to um, that is living the same experience. So it's a mentorship program. It is um, a one-on-one -on -one program. So we don't do like um, uh, support groups. You know, yeah. we, we match people with what they're looking for, the, the 
whether it's a similar age group, demographic, they have similar um, interests. So we have upper and lower limb patients who um, have been through a training that we designed. Um, and that was in 2009. That's when I kind of took over wow. this this nationwide program and um, and expanded it for many years. And now I, there's a one of my team members manages it. But um, yeah, the goal is to just these patients and you know, too, you want to help people who are going Heck through. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have all of these patients whose lives have been completely transformed through their care that are saying, I want to give back. How can I do that? And we have other mm -hmm. patients going, how am I going to get on with my life? And we just put the two together and it's like beautiful music, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's a component of care that is really unique and needed. Um, and so people can opt in, you know, they just certainly don't have to have a mentor, but sometimes people aren't ready to meet with another person who's living life in a similar way, but maybe yeah. their spouse or partner would like to talk to somebody, or we have a lot of couples that, that kind of counsel other couples too. And you really, you don't need a degree in psychology to have a human connection over a shared experience. Right. And so we do a, you know, kind of a do's and don'ts when it comes to, you know, topics, you know, don't suggest any medication, for example, um, but do talk about your own experience. So, um, so we, we trained those folks and it's a continuing program and we've partnered and collaborated with the amputee coalition, which I'm on, on the board of directors for the amputee coalition. So all of the peer mentors that they have trained and all of ours, we kind of cross collaborate and work together to just make sure that there is no person who is going through limb loss alone. Okay. You mentioned about spouse. My wife and I, uh, we first dated when we were in our late teens. 40 years later, we got back together and now we're married. So this all happened to me in between those two mm -hmm. times. So she was totally shocked with what happened to me. And she's just all okay about things. But I've never asked her if she wanted to speak with any other amputee spouses mm -hmm. uh, about things. She seems fine with it, though. Yeah, but, I mean, you guys came back together, and yeah. you didn't suffer the loss together, right? True. And so True. I think, you know, we've got people who the spouses want to be supportive. Their, their spouse who's going through it is angry, and they want to help. And, you know, so connecting those yeah. folks families that have experienced it, it really is cathartic. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's gotta be. So on this, uh, on, on the page for this program is right on the top, learn, share, live. And below it is something I, I really like. Sharing experiences, challenges, and fears with others can reveal solutions, hope, and new possibilities. I think you guys nailed it. I mean, right there, it's going to draw people in and it's going to open up to, hey, let's learn and let's communicate about these things. Yeah, so. the intent is completely sincere. You know, you don't even have to get a prosthesis. You don't even have to be a hanger patient. We All we want to do, and all of the people who are in this program, is to help you get to the place where you're comfortable, confident, you know, secure, strong. That's, that's the most important thing, is just getting back to quote as being quote normal as possible if it's a person like me that goes through the trauma of, of losing limbs. So. Yeah. 
you also are involved with something called uh, the intentional patient experience. Can you tell us about that, please, Gary? Well, yeah, that's like what I said. Um, you know, an experience is going to happen no matter what. Yeah. Okay. So when we're intentional about creating experience, then it can, anybody can be a healer. So when you think about the office administrator who answers the phone, if she's having a rough day or if he's having a rough day and an attitude comes over the phone, well, that yeah. now has triggered an idea of what that experience is going to be like when the, when the patient walks through the door. So we want to be intentional and thoughtful about everything that we do. The words that we use, even, you know, as a former English teacher, I am ah. really really, I'm a word nerd and I know the power of words. And yeah. so we don't, you know, refer to people by their diagnoses. For example, we don't say, oh, we've got a new BE patient, below elbow patient, right? Mm -hmm. We would say we have a patient who's had a below elbow amputation. We lead with person first language. Um, and, uh, you know, that's being intentional about creating experience and human centric experiences is, is knowing the power that you wield on someone else's healing journey, right? So mm -hmm. the way I talk to you, the way I look at you, the, my body posture, all of these things, um, the support I give to you, the education, the time I take with you, this all leads to an intentional experience of healing. It just, when you're talking about all this stuff, it takes me back to how you ended up, <laughs> I'm just chuckling, right? how you ended up from Dallas getting to where the heck you are now. It's just so wild how life can, I don't know if it pulls you in a direction or pushes you in a direction or you just stumble across it. But it, yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's, it yeah. truly is like, I've had so many incredible serendipitous, maybe encounters that I would just have just been so transformative in my life. Um, yeah. And I, you know, part of it was going to Gonzaga and studying and deep dive into servant leadership. It really was transformative. Okay. And then, you know, um, w bringing that to the organization and then in the volunteering in the spaces that I do as well, like mm -hmm. um, Camp No Limits was a life changer for me. Um, okay. Have you heard of that? No, I have not. So Camp No that? Limits, um, years ago, uh, 19 years ago, to be exact, I was invited by an occupational therapist who had heard about me through Hanger to come to a camp that she was starting for kids with limb loss and limb difference. And their parents were invited and their siblings were invited. And there was about 10 kids there. Um, and she wanted an adult mentor to help kids learn skills like tying their shoes or putting their hair in a ponytail. Well, okay. when I when I got to camp, it was just like amazing because I used to go to summer camp and it was terrifying because I didn't know I was always the only kid with a hook. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't know if people were going to be nice to me. But here all these kids are free. They're free to try things. Nobody's staring at them or pointing at them. And it was fantastic. And now it's a nationwide camp. They've got like 15 camps all across the country. And we brought the camp to uh, the Northwest here too. the second year because I was just so moved. And there's a funny mm -hmm. story about serendipity in that one. You want to hear it? Yeah, go. Cool. Yeah. You so I, after, so I go to this camp and it was for me as a 30 some odd year old woman, so incredibly empowering. And I actually gained some strength from those kiddos to feel a little bit more confident, even, you know, because still, no matter where I go, I'm, I'm getting looks at this arm, but it's fun now. But, um, so I'm on the plane coming back from a work trip that I had been on. And it's a few weeks past Camp No Limits, and I'm sitting next to this woman, and I'm just kind of still thinking about camp and just like, oh my God, that was so amazing. And this woman like said, oh, what do you, you know, what do you do for a living? Well, first of all, I, we were talking about her, 
And um, then she's asked me what I did for a living. And I said, well, you know, I work for Hanger. And at that time, I was a restaurant owner, too. But um, I said, but none of that matters. All I really want to do is I want to start this camp in the Northwest with these kids. I was just I want to bring it here. And I was going on and on. I'm like, I don't know where to get the money. I don't know how to do this. I don't know where to start. But that's what I want to do next. And I'm like, and what do you do? And she said, I'm a director of a camp on Coeur d'Alene Lake. No shit. And yeah, yeah. And so we had camp that year. They were booked. And so she's like, you could, you guys could come in September. And I'm like, we're in. And so, um, wow. yeah, nolimitsfoundation.org. Um, that's how the second camp came to be. And then it just spread like wildfire all across the United States. All from, and I'm pointing to uh, that chance meeting in Dallas because one of your yep. prosthetic broke down. And then, well, and then you've got to throw in Gonzaga too with what, really opened your mind yes. and your heart to getting into something and being more confident. Wow. That's just amazing. Yeah. Hey, what do you, what do you think about the relationship? How strong a relationship between the patient and the prosthetist? It's critical. It's a critical relationship. It's a lifelong trusting partnership. Um, so when I think about that, you know, I can text my clinician if I need to. Mm. I've done video conferences from my house. Like, is this normal? How do I fix this? I've had my prosthesis pulled apart, you know, on my workbench in my in my shop. And he's like talking me through it. Um, yeah, the relationship is critical. It's it's forever, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have always noted that and I've had a bunch of different prosthetists because I've moved quite a bit. Uh, there's an artist in many of them that I think they have to have an artistic value on what they're doing. It's not just understanding the uh, biology uh, and the skeletal system or how to work with people, but there's something to them that to me is artistic and, yeah. one, and what they design. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. Hey, question for you. And I'm not trying to get into politics at all. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on universal health care in the United States? Do you think that would be a benefit to people, especially when we're talking about limb loss? Well, certainly, because, you know, a lot of times we are limited by what we can provide for a patient based yeah. on what their insurance coverage is. And, you know, when you think about, um, when you're getting a new job, do you ever look at your benefits package to see what your no, um, prosthetic coverage is? No, especially no. if you're not living that life, you know, but then suddenly you become an amputee and you realize, oh, I have a $5,000 lifetime benefit for a prosthesis, right? I mean, it's impossible. Yeah. 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 So um, it, it, if not universal healthcare, at least prosthetic parity, you know, nationwide and, and looking at patient need and um, making sure that we're providing uniformly across the board, you know, that $5,000, come on now um, yeah, for a lifetime totally benefit. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And that's something on that. I'm, I'm trying to move the show in that sort of direction for people that are, want to speak up in so many different areas and you're doing the same thing here. Carrie is about, Hey, what about this? And, and, you know, just trying to spur some things because nobody really gives a rip. Uh, you know, all the money that Congress threw out 10, 12 years ago, it's already been absorbed and spent and, and things are done. And now they're dealing with, uh, the issues of these people that, that had to come back. And 10 years later, I wonder where they are and what they're using. They may yep. have thrown their multi-moving finger hands and just 
pitched him and said, screw this. Um, oh, well, so. Well, I mean, it. it's got to be yeah. customized for everybody. But one other thing, you know, yeah. in that regard and, and what people are, can get, um, you know, adaptive devices are not generally covered by insurance. You know, insurance will buy one prosthesis for you every three to five years, you know. Mm. And so there's a movement now so people can move, so kids can move. It started as so kids can move. Um, and being able to provide uh, an adaptive device that would allow people to run. When you think about long-term health of an mm-hmm. individual and just giving them one prosthesis to do everything. And if they want to run and be healthy and, you know, that sort of thing and not, not providing that prosthesis. So mm-hmm. there, there are groups going all over state by state um, promoting this um, awareness campaign and, and, getting insurance companies on board to say, Hey, we're going to save a lot more money in the long run. If you let us be active. That just makes sense. But they look at, yeah, the, the bottom line on, yeah, it's, it's tried. It's very difficult to get, to have people look into the future because they want to make sure that their jobs are secure now. And they don't <laughs> want to be the one that opens the pocketbook. Speaking of running. Yeah. Parathlons. Para, no, paratriathlons. I said yes. Paratri- tell me about this. Oh, my god. You goodness. got into that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, around the time when I, w- I started with Hanger and uh, I was seeing all of these people. This is when actually I was consulting with Hanger. Um, but I was seeing all these people it becoming paratriathletes or uh, Paralympians. And they were getting these great job offers. And they were getting, mm-hmm. you know, they were like, wow, their status is great. It's not like you know, oh, poor girl without her arm. It's like, wow, look at her. She's so strong. So I'm like, well, God, maybe I could, maybe I could get in on this. I never had this on my radar as anything I wanted to do. (laughs) I was literally thinking about it in terms of maybe it could get me a better job or, you know, maybe people would see me differently and, um, or I could climb a ladder sooner. But, um, so I was, I was, participating in a race and, and, uh, the USA paratriathlon president was there and he's, and he was also missing his arm, uh, from a limb difference, uh, or congenital limb difference. And he's like, Hey, you're a triathlete. And I'm like, eh, not really, you know, I'm just here to, <laughs> you know, I wasn't going to say, I'm just here to kind of serve my ego's need to be accepted in this really cool population of people who are athletes. But he's like, there's never been a female below elbow competitor at the national level in paratri i'm the president i'm putting you on the team you're coming to new york and you're going to do the triathlon i'm like oh my god well what okay i'll do that and he's like all you have to do is finish and you will be the national champion i'm like okay let's do this i'm in so i did and i did it twice and i'm a two-time paratriathlon national champion and there is i must tell you there was no competition each time i crossed the finish line i was the only woman in my category and whatever i was i was guaranteed the win but i think you know people saw me on the podium and they're like wait she's the national champion i think i could beat her or i got a friend that could probably beat her and then i just got out of the way and i'm like there you go other women it's yours (laughs) that's a good story it's just (laughs) again amazing how just a thought of doing one thing carries you into something if 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 we lead our lives instead of just in our own cocoons because we're too worried about how we're viewed by others if we experience life anything can happen weird things cool things bad things whatever the bad shit's going to happen anyway so you may as well get out there and see if there's some cool stuff that happens too well That's- yeah i'll tell you that i served my fear for a long time 
right? I yeah. sur- I leaned into fear and the like, what if, yeah, but what if this happens? And I always kind of projected what, what if negativity happened? I didn't even think about, but what if I could become a this or a that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, when I started just kind of, actually it was leaning into love more than fear. Like, do I love myself enough to, to risk being embarrassed? Yes, I do. Or do I love my friends enough to take on uh, this challenge? I was a surrogate for some friends of mine um, who in, in this was 13, 14 years ago, and I carried their baby and they're two gay men, you know, oh, and at that cool. time, yeah, at that time, you know, gay men couldn't get married in the state of yeah. Washington. And God. it was very hard for them to adopt. And I'm like, okay, I'll do it. because. But I also knew that this was going to throw a lot of people off and maybe they'd see me differently. But I just kind of, I'm like, it doesn't matter. I'm leaning into the love that I have for them. And now there's yeah. this beautiful little 13-year-old girl in the world. Wow. You're a rebel. I mean, seriously, that that's cool. I, I, I would imagine you're very happy about that if you were to sit down and just think about it. You are a rebel on things. You're not afraid to take chances on stuff. Mm, I commend that. I, so you know what? I have been afraid, but I've worked past it. That's the thing. Like when we talk about like people being like badasses, they they fear nothing. They do like no. Yeah, I sure. have a lot of fear, but I just just I choose to go forward because I know that the consequences if I'm doing anything out of a place of love, it's going to work out. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's um. Let's shift gears right on that point. And we're going to go into uh, uh, the road trip roundup. I've got five questions for you, Carrie. And I want you to just sit back and relax. Let the dogs answer for you. That's no problem. You hear that? Yeah. That, that... <laughs> Don't worry about it. I'm Don't worry about it. Or because that little beep beep sent the wiener dogs into their. We, okay. We're a family show, so we can just. All right. Go for it. What are your five so, questions? When road tripping, do you tend to do fast food or local diners? Local diners. That's my, my wife, Sue and I, that's what we do now because I've been doing a show. At least 90% of people do it. Do the local diners. Yeah. That's cool. Take the time for yourself to relax. That's cool. Absolutely. And my best guy is a chef. And so we, we avoid the, we avoid the fast food and try local always. Yeah. Very cool. All right. What's a dream car for a road trip? It can be something you grew up with, you know, like your old station wagon or something parents had or something you had at some time or something. Maybe if, if you knew you're like, going to cruise the uh, California coastline, want to go rent. And don't mm-hmm. say the red convertible Mustang that uh, you were talked into using for the video. Well, I think one of those convertible Dodge, you know, the souped up, you know, what are those called? Dodge chargers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think that would be fine. Just something convertible if I was cruising the California coast for sure. Yeah. But I'm not a big car person. I don't really care about cars that much. So I would just say anything maybe convertible. Okay. All right. Now, thinking about being in a convertible mm-hmm. sometime, and we'll we'll relate this to however you want to go with it. What was the last cassette or CD that played while you were on a road trip? Cassette? Like you want me to go to cassette? <laughs> I said or cassette well, or CD. I could tell you one of my favorite ca- cassettes was the Yaz album, Upstairs huh? at Eric. Yaz. Well, who's you don't Yaz? remember Yaz? I mean, this was way back, uh, like high school. Um, I'm older than you, and I don't remember who the heck was uh, Yaz. Was yeah, it rock oh, or what? That kind of techno-y. Um, uh, they sing "Don't Walk Away from Love." You don't know the song, baby. Don't walk away from love. No. No. <laughs> it's not I'm ringing just a bell. About, 
No, I'm just thinking when you said techie, I'm thinking about the guys with the uh, flower pots on their heads. Devo, um, you're thinking be, Devo. Yeah, Devo, I'm thinking Devo. So when you say that, God, mm-hmm. now I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to ask uh, Alexa to uh, play me some Devo. Um, what's the name <laughs> of it again? Yes. Yeah. Y-A-Z, yes. Okay, Good I will job. go upstairs after Sue, my wife, wakes up and ask uh, mm-hmm. Alexa to play some yes. I promise you. Do it. All right, love so it. straight up, uh, Coke or Pepsi? Coke for sure. Okay, yeah, that's a safe one. We <laughs> actually, I actually had a guest not long ago that was Pepsi, and it, and it blew the string of I think like seventeen guests in a row that always said <laughs> Coke. Last one, I want you to go wherever you want on this. I just love this question. What's your favorite road trip memory? Mm, gosh, well, you know. I don't know about my favorite, but I have this road trip memory that led to one of my favorite trips. And it was, we had a Ford Aerostar van, big long Mm. van, and my Mm. mom and dad drove it. And my brother and I got to have our very own long bench seats in the back. Okay. So so we drove from Spokane all the way to Arizona and we rafted the Grand Canyon for 10 days. And then we drove all the way back. Yeah. So, wow, oh yeah, that's oh, yeah. along the way we stopped at like Jackson Hole and like yep. we just saw cool things. And so that was one of my favorite road trips. And the fact that I got to stretch out in the old van made it nice. I can just imagine you and your brother getting into a slap fest or something. Just no, that's that a other. beautiful thing. We each had our own long bench. We didn't have to touch each other. We didn't have to talk to each other. And I did have a cassette um, Walkman. Remember those, you know, yep. with the yep. earphones. And so I just. Yep. Just played my cassette tapes and listened all but the way. I'm now. just imagining whoever's sitting behind gets to reach up and slap the other one on the back of the head. No, it, it didn't it was happen that, that long. Yeah, well, those yeah. are some of my memories slapping up my brother and sister. All right. <laughs> okay, so uh, we're going to end here. I want to stay on for a couple of minutes, but I'm just going to tell everybody challenge locks and keep listening to Life's a Road Trip. Thanks for listening. Check out previous episodes with new ones dropping each Tuesday. If you don't see a synopsis of this show where you're listening, visit our website at lifesaroadtrip.podbean.com for more information on this week's guest. This is your host, Scott Martin, reminding you that life's a road trip.